This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm good to go. All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get to it, with the return of Alex Pohl, blacksmith and public, published author, we have to take care of a little bit of business. Number one is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your wood, for your steel, for the Damascus, whatever you got, your leather, it doesn't matter. I actually just sent out a couple walnut handles, and I used Axe Wax, and I loved it. I put it on some leather, and it's great, too. And if you go to AxeWax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? If you're in Australia, go to NordicEdge.com.au, and they will accept Full Blast 10 for... For the axe wax, it, thanks to uh, Sausage Man Forge, Jamie's the man. Good old Jamie hooked that one up, and I appreciate that. And thank you, Nordic Edge, for for doing that. And UK Knife Maker Supplies. That's Toby Murrell, um, but it's not UK then Knife Maker. It's U Knife Maker Supplies. I don't know why he did that, but Toby, I'm with you 100. He is also generously. Um, supporting Full Blast 10 to get 10% off your Axe Wax. So go get yourself some Axe Wax. Next thing is, holidays are here, and I'm sure some of you are doing a little bit of business. And when if you're doing the business, the one thing you don't want to be doing business in is in the DMs because that's for suckers. Asking questions that you know the answers to, but you have to keep writing it over and over and over again. You need a good website. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash fullblast... And you fill out the paperwork. Andreas Kalani will get you squared away. He will help you get a new website or he'll fix your existing website or he'll help you with your logo or help you with any kind of graphic design. He is a maker helping makers and that's good enough for me and it's good enough for you. So don't play around. It's, you know, and you should After this season, you should say, all right, well, let's get a real website going. Go to akinteractive.com slash fullblast and get yourself squared away. And he's going to give you 10% off, by the way. Last but not least, give yourself the gift of education, ladies and germs. The Center for Metal Arts is offering up their 20, 2022 season of classes. And you should go take a blacksmithing class down in Johnstown, PA with some of the best of the best and me. The best of the best, and then me. So Salem Straub, Nick Anger, Peter Ross, you got uh, Pat Quinn teaching uh, Power Hammer classes. You have some of the best of the best down there, and then I'll be teaching a class. So uh, the, the best of the best, and me. And I'm the worst of the best. I'm the worst of the best. That's fine. So go down to the Center for Metal Arts, Center for Metal Arts.org. Get yourself into one of these classes and, uh, you know, learn a little something. It's going to propel you. Okay. Speaking of being propelled, my guest today is a returning champion, Alex Pohl. Alex Pohl has a shop. He's I, He's got to be one of the big biggest blacksmiths in the UK. There's just, I don't think there's anybody better. Alex has just written, since the last time he was on the show, two books. He has The Forge Kitchen, which is an amazing cookbook that I can't wait to talk about. And just out now is Blacksmith Apprentice to Master Tools and Traditions of an Ancient Craft. Alex Pohl, how the hell are you and how do you do it all? Good evening, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I'm very well here, actually, in the UK, uh, in the dark, cold, wet UK. 
how do I doodle? I don't know. We just we just do it. Um, I kind of, I mean, the cookbook was 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 kind of easy in a way. That was a bit of a no brainer to to start with. You know, we make kitchenware. I think a lot of you guys know the type of stuff that we do. We specialize in kitchenware, cooking utensils. Uh, we know a lot of chefs, and we just kind of put the two together and and made a book. Um, See, but it's interesting that you say that. But the 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 great thing is is the cookbook is beautiful. I love cookbooks. I get cookbooks all the time. I have a huge collection of cookbooks. I love cookbooks with beautiful pictures. I like I like cookbooks that tell stories. Yep. And this cookbook, The Forge Kitchen, is so beautiful. But what's interesting about it is it's not a no-brainer because there's not a lot of other blacksmiths who've done something like this. When you yeah. talk about blacksmiths making stuff, most blacksmiths, especially listening to this podcast, they'll make tools to make tools. They'll make tools to make other sculptures or blacksmith things or things to help themselves. But this book is all about the fact that you've created these beautiful tools to make food. Cause every, every dish in the, in the, in the episode, in the, in the, in the recipe book is uh, a recipe from a chef using your kitchenware in that, in the, the intrinsic quality of the kitchenware in order to create each recipe. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 basic idea, uh, I like a lot of ideas. It sort of comes to you out of the blue. You know, it's normally around kind of half past four in the morning when you can't sleep, uh, or you wake up and you kind of think, okay, this is a good idea. So what I, I we know a lot of chefs from doing the festivals um, here in the UK. We were on a festival circuit for about ten years, going off doing shows and making stuff and demos and teaching people and and selling the kitchenware and. Um, so the basic idea was to I sent three pieces of kitchenware, three different utensils to uh, 18 different chefs that I know um who all very generously gave their recipes. They weren't paid in, in any way at all. It was a it was a you know pure collaboration. But what I did I said like here's three items. Uh use those as your inspiration for your dish, not the ingredients, but the things that you're going to cook with. Uh, so, you know, one chef, I, I send him a butter knife and a bottle opener um, and, a, and a barbecue fork, like a meat fork. So he did a kind of, he made, a, a, he put a recipe in for making butter and then he did a, um, what did he do? A beer bread and then um, a chicken on the barbecue. And then at the end, he puts the whole thing together to have like a coronation chicken sandwich. You know, and to me, that's just, that's just genius. You know, we. And it just kind of grew from there, really. You know, it was just one of those things. And it was a, I had a lot of help from um, from Pooch Horsborough, who's my, you know, the stylist and food expert. She was a kind of a go-between uh, between me and the chefs. Um, and everyone just got on board and they thought this is a kind of a, a weird idea for a cookbook. Um, let's go for it. And we were very lucky to have an amazing photographer, Chris Terry. Um, and... You know, my own, my designer, Spike, who has also designed the Blacksmith book, is just a genius, you know. So it's kind of, I'm like a facilitator, really. I'm not, I didn't really do, I come up with ideas. Were you, ex did you have any, like, expectations in regards to what was going to be put in? As in the like, recipes? What kind of recipes? Uh, no, not really expectations. I mean, you know, uh, guys like Nick Weston, Hunter Gather Gook, and, and Gil Meller are uh, well known for for being open fire 
cooks. Right. You know, Gil does a lot of cooking on the beach. Um, so you kind of are geared a little bit of the stuff that they were given to their style of cooking. Some of the chefs are pure kitchen chefs. Some cross over different lines. Some are really into cooking offal. Some are into cooking, you know, some are vegetarian. Um, you know, and so we wanted to kind of give a broad church of of different, you know, some kind of starters, some mains, some desserts. Um, you know, my brother is a herbalist, so he he did the herbal tea. Once you've eaten a lot, you know, it was really cool to be able right. to kind of have some recipes for herbal tea, some wine, some cocktails, some advice on meat, how to cook a steak. You know, it's kind of, it's pretty broad reaching. And then there's a little bit about how we make the stuff in the middle. I loved the cookbook. And I, like I said, I, the pictures are beautiful. And all I could think of, and when I look at both of your books, I see your voice. I see, I hear your voice in both of them. Uh, I can't wait to talk about the blacksmith, but I want to keep no. going on the, the culinary book because that one came out first. And that was the one that you actually mentioned first on this podcast, which I was yeah. grateful for. I would imagine that uh, I liked, I loved seeing there was one dish where the, there was a, fi- a piece of fish that was nailed to a piece of wood and then it was yeah. kind of held over the, over the, over the fire. I love that. But one of the things that I, I have to talk about, which is, was like, was totally crazy to me. Oh, not crazy, but it was just like, oh my God, I, I would, I love to hear the story of this is uh, Christian St- Stevenson, DJ yeah. barbecue. Yeah did a recipe for lamb fat oysters and you created this tool called the flamadoo flamadoo the flamadoo yeah talk yeah, yeah. to me about what this thing is let's it's talk unbelievable. yeah let's talk about the flamadoo so uh the flamadoo is actually a really ancient well a kind of medieval cooking implement um that was used for basting meat so you know in medieval times you would you'd cook a whole beast there wasn't much, there was a lot of butchery, but there wasn't much fine butchery. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we don't need to go into all that. But so this instrument, which is basically like a, a pretty, uh, quite a sizable kind of metal funnel uh, with a handle on it, was used for basting um, these big joints of meat, whether it be beef or lamb. And also, what they used to do is scoop into the trough underneath the beast, and then they'd cook oysters with the hot fat so they didn't want to waste it um oysters were peasant food back in the medieval times this was you know rich people didn't eat oysters this is for for the commoners and uh, and then they would sear it so you'd get that you know amazing kind of silky buttery beefy meaty taste but with an oyster um and actually it was kind of um uh, I don't know if reinvented is the right word by a guy called Nicholas Ekstedt from um, Stockholm. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a very famous Swedish chef who was one of the first guys, not the first, but one of the kind of um, guys who was instrumental in this fire cooking scene that is is now so huge. So his restaurant Ekstedt in, in Stockholm only cooked over open fire. And uh, Christian was inspired by seeing Nicholas cooking with this this flamadou uh, and and then so that had to go into the cookbook you know and actually we had dinner with, um at an event that nicholas was doing 
a few weeks ago. I took the lads from the forge to a surprise dinner. I mean, he's one of our favorite chefs. And and then they were cooking with this flambeau. You basically you have this cone of of metal that's red hot. You put it in the coals. You stuff it full of beef fat or lamb flat, and you you drizzle it over um, raw oysters, and it cooks them, and it's amazing. I would. What's amazing is I, I, I would. I'd be. I'd be interested to know how you made the, your flamadou. That's number one. But to me, there is when you were talking about the beef fat and the oysters, I automatically. I hadn't really thought about it reading the reading the the, the, um, the recipe, but thinking about it, there is a perfect contrast between the briny quality of an oyster to this kind of rich. Um, this rich quality of the beef fat. So I would yeah. imagine that it was like this perfect combination. Is it surf and turf? You know, yeah. it's kind of, yeah. but this is real peasant food. And now, which kind of amuses me in a, in a funny kind of way, uh, you know, being potentially quite posh, but having lived pretty much as a peasant most of my life, um, that, you know, the, the peasant food is now elevated to the status of kind of, you know, right up the top, um, and I and I love that kind of twist uh, to the cooking. But you you asked um, you asked how I made the flambadis. They're they're yeah. really easy to make. But I you know I made it. If I make another one, I'm going to make it in a purely traditional fashion. This the the last few I've made were made in a kind of semi traditional fashion. So basically, a cutter. Um, you know, it's like wrapping up a witch's cone in in cardboard when you were a kid, or a funnel. Okay. So you cut a um you cut a segment of a circle and then I just heated it up, put it on the swage block, forged it round. I'd actually forged a, a little mini mandrel to just to refine the shape. Um and then I what did I do next? I actually welded, I electric welded it. At that stage we were still using a welder to make things in the workshop. So this is a few years ago. Now we don't we don't weld anything, so I'd either forge weld it now or I'd rivet the whole thing together, um, and then I I rivet I forged a handle, long handle. So the handle was probably about about three foot long because you 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 want to keep it away from the flames basically. Right. And when you're cooking with it, you stuff it full of coals and you bury it in the coal. So this thing's glowing hot. You know, it's probably about seven hundred degrees. Uh, so you, you want to be relatively far away from it. Um, and then, yeah, I used kind of traditional, you know, I just drilled some holes and riveted it onto the handle. They're, they're pretty basic to make. Have you, was this the, for this recipe, was this the first time you'd made one? No, this, uh, Christian had, someone had approached me uh, for making one. I think Christian had done a festival and he asked me, no, someone, another chef, a guy called Richard Gladwin asked me to make some. Uh so I'd I'd made a few. I haven't made a huge amount, um, uh, you know, a half a dozen or so. And he saw someone using it at a festival, and then Christian got in touch and said, "Look, I've got to have a couple of these," you know. And then it kind of went. There. I'm sure it's not as convenient in a home kitchen to, <laughs> to be using one of these, because <laughs> I can also imagine, like, you know, you get this cone hot, you throw some fat in there, and then it's drizzling like liquid flame. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. So you want to ignite. A... You've got to ignite the fat. And then you, you drip it onto raw. We actually cooked the oysters a little bit beforehand. We warmed them in the. I mean, I don't like raw oysters, but I love cooked oysters, so I was yeah. quite happy we cooked them. Um, and then you drizzle this flaming. It was lamb fat we used, but you can yeah. use beef fat 
Or you could use anything, really. I mean, it, it was, yeah, it's beautiful. So of all the other, I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I love the fact that, you know, this, the, the pictures are beautiful. It seems to me that the, the, the theme of it isn't just uh, the forged kitchen. It is a, a celebration of like new UK style recipes. I mean, the food here is very localized to the, you know, whatever is around the area. I felt like it was very much along the line of a, you know, not just a cookbook, but like a UK cookbook. Yeah, I think, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't set out to do that. I mean, I I did have plans about doing an international forge kitchen. um, Because we know chefs in the States, lots in Europe, Australia, Japan, or, you know, we know... kind of through social media we know them all around the world so you know one plan was to do an international one um i i didn't set out for it to be particularly british but i think just because of the nature of the type of chefs that we work with it just happened to be that that's their style um and we're all very kind of passionate about using local produce uh you know some of it's foraged some of it's from local producers it, uh, you know, if we can get stuff that's as close to the forge as possible. So it, it was a kind of, that's a, yeah, that's a kind of byproduct, I suppose. But yes, it's very distinctly British. I, I love, I love seeing the pictures of you guys, you and Steve and Joe and, and your whole crew when you guys do like an outdoor event. Um, you got the, you know, you have all your stuff going and you have a chef going and it's very like, there is something just very magical about the way you guys cook, especially outside. I love the fact that you're creating this this kind of the more kitchen tools, and yeah. I wonder, you know, you, the beautiful ladles and the and the and the, the knives and the forks and the skewers. Is there anything in down the line that you're kind of like really chomping at the bit to make? Oh yeah, for the kitchen. Yeah, loads, lots. Uh a potato masher is going to be one of oh, my. Oh, there yeah. you go. Potato masher. I've got an ice cream scoop planned. Uh, chopsticks. Uh, I mean, you know, I've got a blackboard by my forge, and I write up ideas as I go, and some of them work. I'm just doing some salad servers. Uh, what was I doing the other day? Something. I don't know. A lot of my experiments don't work. You know, fine. It, uh, but you know, and what I kind of, I suppose. You know, I kind of tend to look at stuff in the kitchen and think, oh, we could make that. Or, you know, chopsticks or corn on the cob. Oh, yeah. Spikes. Uh, I mean, it's end. I mean, that's the beauty of, of kitchenware, you know, and that's the beauty of the kitchen is that it goes anywhere from, you know, we've just forged um, a series of chef's knives. We put them up for sale on Friday. Uh, you know, that's weeks of work. We only put six up. And that's a kind of high-end start to the kitchen, you know. Yeah. And then you can go through everything, all the way down to... You know, I love making teaspoons. I'm obsessed by spoons. I have been for years. Um, I collect spoons. I've been making them when I was a jeweler. Uh, I used to make for, you know, art spoons. So there were sculptural spoons and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, spoons is, is a big thing for me. But then all the way down to... I've spent today forging axes, you know, for, for prepping up the wood, for lighting your fire. And so... You know, we're really lucky that we have such a broad, a sort of a you know broad canvas in which to play on. Uh, 
and it, and it, we're not really kind of constrained. You know, it's got to be to do with food and drink. But it's, yeah, to, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, no, I, know, no, I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, you know, for years I've been posing the question to blacksmiths, especially modern day blacksmiths. And this is a question I've been asking for literally for years. I guess I think a lot of it had to do with when I was learning under Uri Hoffi. Mm-hmm. There was some moments where he was he would sit around the, the 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 classroom and he would just turn to us and say, "Look, construction now is not is not ornamental ironwork. You know, a lot of modern day construction is stainless steel and glass and bronze." You've got to figure out what the role of the modern day blacksmith is. And that always stuck with me because it's true. It's totally true. So I ask a lot of modern day blacksmiths what they think the role of the modern day blacksmith is. And actually, finally, after, you know, years, I was talking to Pat Quinn a couple episodes ago. And we came to the conclusion that after the Industrial Revolution and like the blacksmith was kind of really kind of pushed to the side for this, these machine quality, it is, it is without question, the role of the modern day blacksmith is to bring humanity back into this craft. Yeah. Bring the human touch. Yeah. And when I look at what the direction that you guys have taken, which is different than most, you know, there are a lot of blacksmiths like me who have gotten into knife making and stuff like that, but we haven't gotten into kitchenware. We haven't gotten into making pans. Yeah. There's a few guys making pans, <laughs> but not. And what I love about what you you guys do, what you do is you've created something that is all about the human touch, you know, the axes and the all the kitchenware. Not only is it the humanity of it, but it's actually stuff that people are using or handling. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's the point. You know, we so we make pre-industrial revolution cookware, right? You know, and that's the whole point. And and it's interesting that you say about the the role of the modern blacksmith. So, you know, within the hierarchy of of which there is one of smiths, uh, and you know, within the different trades within the blacksmithing community, whether it's art or sculpture or you know, architectural tool making whatever you know we're basically the bottom of the pile we're the kind of we're the shit kickers of the blacksmithing scene here in the uk we are kind of you know we're we're right down the bottom because we're production smiths so we don't just make single pieces obviously and we make things that you use in the kitchen so i mean this always makes me laugh is that kind of yeah basically we are we are the kind of least respected uh, of the trades here in the UK. Because, really? Because, yeah, uh, that's my feeling, you know, because of that. So knife makers and people who make Damascus, I, I probably get slated for this, but, you know, I don't really give a shit, quite frankly. But, you know, the kind of, there's there's a kind of hierarchy and the old school and that I make gates and railings and uh, and the sculptors and the, and the artistic blacksmith is still kind of reigning Raining, you know, ruling the roost to a certain degree. Um, yeah, my feeling is that production smiths are very much kind of because we, we because we work and we we behave. And I run a workshop, which is effectively something that if if someone from pre-industrial revolution came into my forge, uh, they would be totally comfortable. They would see new types of machinery. But they're not that new. They would uh, probably be shocked at how tidy it is because I'm obsessive with 
the workshop being tidy. But they would also understand the concept of what we're trying to do. We have a, you know, we 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 work in the old way, but with new designs and new concepts and new ways of selling. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of it kind of it it it, it makes me giggle a little bit that um, you know, and the role of the modern blacksmith is is whatever they want it to be. But you know, when younger smiths come to me. Or I hear them talking, whatever, you know, and they say, you know, I want to be a blacksmith. My thing is always, what type of blacksmith do you want to be? Make a decision. You can change. You can, you, you know, I've changed my career. I reinvent myself all the time because that's just my part of my character. Uh, but kind of focus, you've got to be very, very myopic. You know, we have, I am absolutely obsessed with this one direction and taking the business. At one stage, I was turning down probably sixty, maybe seventy thousand pounds worth of work a year, which was more than my income, uh, because I didn't want to make gates, or right. I didn't want to fix wheelbarrows, or I didn't want to make railings, or I didn't want to, you know, d- do door hinges or whatever. And it's you've got to be absolutely focused, but that focus enables you to to be f- so free in another way. So it's about making the decision. So the role of the modern blacksmith is whatever they want it to be. No, but what I'm saying is, is like when I talk about the role of the modern day blacksmith, I'm not just an individual, but you know, when we talk about like your book, blacksmith apprentice to master, which I love, I read the whole thing. Your, your publisher sent me a copy and I really appreciate it. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's not for just a blacksmith. It's very approachable to anybody who just wants to know what's going on. What I found interesting about it really was your voice was so strong in it. And I love your connection in your writing and the way that you, the direction that you've taken in regards to the book. But bringing back a little bit to what you said before, I find it very hard to believe that there's a, there's, there's, a, there is, I, not hard to believe. I'm surprised that you say that there's this weird pecking order and then you're at the bottom of it. And one of the reasons why I say, you know, the role of the modern day blacksmith is to bring humanity in is, is a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, it there there's one chapter in your book about is this a dying art or this isn't a dying art and you're talk yeah. you're talking about uh, artisans. I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'm gonna get yeah. I'll get us back. Yeah. I really do believe that because, you know, back in the day the role of the blacksmith was so intrinsic to society. Yeah. And it was the person who made your nails, the person who made all your 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 hardware, the person who made your tools. You there's this whole part. I mean, I'm fucking jumping around, but there's a whole part where you talk about the story of the king of craftsmen, and and we're gonna get into that too. I am surprised that you think that that there's like a pecking order. I do know, I do believe that there's a pecking order with Damascus guys, but I don't. I'm surprised that you think that there's a pecking order in regards to the f- stuff that you make, which is very approachable to you know people and it's within the vein of what the traditional modern day with the old school blacksmiths are doing and yeah. what's going on today i mean we don't believe we're at the bottom <laughs> no we believe we're at the top <laughs> that's, well you are I that's because i'm extremely arrogant as well as kind of humbled <laughs> simultaneously <laughs> um no i mean it just it strikes it strikes me is that that's and and you know it might be an illusion it might be just a kind of my take on it but you know, it's just a it's just a kind of a feeling that you get, and I think it's a kind of 
you know, it's a slight hangover from the 70s, 80s, where the, the age of the artist blacksmith, you know, he, he reigned. Right. Uh, you know, he was king of the pile because that's what was going on in these great, you know, the million pound commissions and the, the, or the, the railings for the, you know, for the big estates and all this kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't know why we do what we do, but I, you know what I love is the fact that we are kind of going back to the old school, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think the role of the modern day blacksmith is to bring the humanity back, to bring the texture back, to to show to show the craftsman in the piece. But it is it's as equal to that is this is something that should be used, right? You know. I mean, I've got a knife that that we made, uh, what Joe and I made last year, and it's been sitting there, and it's one of the, it's the only piece I haven't been able to sell for some reason. And Joe said, "Well, we should just put it on the wall." And I'm like, "It's a knife. We've got to use it. So at some stage, someone will either buy it, or it'll have to be used." So it, you know, the stuff that we make isn't for sitting around and looking at. Yes, it's beautiful, and we make it with with passion and skill, and and it's you know thought about massively, but. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a spoon, and spoons are there to be used, or it's a fork, or it's a pan. And you know, one of the one of the kind of quite frequent things I get is when someone buys one of our frying pans. It's got this beautiful seasoning color on it, and then they use it, and it all disappears. Right, and it gets a bit burnt, or it might get a bit rusty because they're carbon steel. And they get terribly panicky. You know, I get messages at kind of you know the middle of the night going, "Oh my god, I've ruined this pan." You know, and you have to try and explain to people, but this is stuff that needs to be used. And the more you use it, the better it gets, the more life it has. And uh, and that creates that's what really creates the piece. You know, we're just kind of facilitators. We, we make nice objects, but it's it's the it's our customers that bring them to life. I also believe that the, the work that you guys do is very approachable, approachable, not only in price but approachable in its usability because like you said, they're not ornate with like gold leaf and there's not like engraving and it's not something that people should, I always get worried because I have a lot of friends who make knives that are like, you know, when you take this knife out, you got to put on gloves and you got to like, you know, (laughs) there's a whole, you know, like a whole production in order to use it because you're totally afraid of ruining it. I get the feeling with the stuff that you make that it, you get the feeling that be, besides the price and the approachability and the, the look of it all, it is very usable, very user-friendly, which I think is part of the bringing back the humanity. Yeah, I think so. And that's that's part of my kind of design ethic and my design style. Uh, it's also part of the understanding that, you know, you don't want to have to wear gloves to cook your dinner because right. the pan is so beautiful. It doesn't matter. If it's got a little scratch, I mean, everything that goes out of the workshop goes out in perfect condition, but there's a kind of, there's a balance, you know, we have a, we have a motto is that we are not machines. You know, we have got lots of mottos and some of them are probably unrepeatable, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we're not machines, we're human beings and we make human stuff for other human beings. And so you've you've nailed it absolutely. This to bring the humanity into what we're doing. We don't want to be machines, and my customers and probably yours don't want us to be machines, and they don't mind 
you know, I mean, a blade has to be straight. There's, 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 you know, if you're making a knife, there are basic parameters. An axe has got to be sharp. It's got to stay on the handle. You know, Joe and I are having a debate today because he's taking, you know, he wouldn't finish the axe handles because we didn't have any 400 J Flex belts. And I'm like, just take it to 220. It's fine. It's a handle. You know, it's going to be fucked as soon as someone chops us a piece of wood anyway. And we have this kind of constant back and forth, which is what I really enjoy, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's and we find a balance between all of it. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes you've got to push it that little extra mile. And actually, he, he finished the axe handles, and you, and you run your hand down, and you go, yeah, that's that's really special. That's beautiful. It doesn't matter. Within a week, it's going to be scarred and scratched. But when the customer opens this, you know, his box takes the axe out. He's going to have that moment of thrill. And then hopefully he's just going to go and chop some wood and probably leave it outside and it'll go rusty. But, you know, we've met all the parameters that we need to. You know, I, this is something that I think about quite often, especially as a knife maker and dealing with knife makers. And um, I'm, I'm, I always look at... I always look at the way I do my work and I try to bring everything back to as simple as possible to the yeah. point now. And I, oh, I think about, I think about what, you know, when I talk to other makers, especially on this podcast, I've been very fortunate to speak to some of the best of the best. And I think back and I kind of think about it and it may, it pushes me away from doing certain things. Like I'm less, I'm less, I'm more, I'm more hesitant to make integral knives I'm more hesitant to I'm more hesitant than I've ever been to make Damascus. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I want to make things more approachable and easier for the customer. And I also want I, I just there's something about fit and finish and the humanity of it and I just part of me just wants to kind of like bring everything back to a simpler situation and not overcomplicate things for my customer. And it also yeah. makes me wonder what kind of blacksmith I am and, and what kind of person I am. But I do understand what you're going through with the whole with 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 that, because it really does make you wonder why do I need to worry about like a plunge line? Because it's like, you know, or sometimes you sometimes with knife makers, you, you, you worry about things that only another knife maker would worry about. Yeah. You know, like a, a knife, uh, like a, a customer who buys a knife to cook dinner could care less about the things that knife makers are worried other knife makers are going to see. No, exactly. And you need to understand. So that's about, you know, that's, that's the kind of interface between being super technical blacksmith or knife maker or craftsperson, whether it, you know, any craft in the workshop, in that bubble that we live in, that we, we work in and we're obsessed about. And, you know, there's, there's that marriage between that and, and the person who's actually using Thing that you're making yeah you know i'm i'm not a very good blacksmith <laughs> to be honest why uh, because i don't have the patience you know because I, I i don't need to take it to that ultimate level because i i think i understand the customer to in a way too well you know we don't sell, i don't sell knives to collectors because they're not of a high enough kind of you know they're not embellished enough uh, you know, and, and and absolutely honestly, Joe makes most of the knives now. I'm not a knife maker anyway. I'm a bladesmith, so I don't have anything to do with the handles. I don't, you know, I don't care about bolsters. I'm not interested. It's not for me. It's about making the blade. Yeah. 
you know, that, and that and that is also a very traditional way of doing things. I'm, you know, I'm fucking crap with woodwork because I hit it with a hammer and it breaks. You know, woods for <laughs> woods for starting forges, so we can forge metal. You know, Joe. Oh, I mean, the guys. I don't want to say too many nice things because he might even listen to this, but you know, he's a fucking genius, and he has this kind of technical ability that I will never have because I'm not interested enough in that absolute perfection i'm more interested in a kind of in a feel in a kind of in an essence i think at one point in my career i was really wanted to be a machine i wanted to get that perfection and you know you know my past i i I spent 15 years in the jewelry trade uh making very high spec well and low spec jewelry you know all sorts of different kind of stuff and that kind of you know the pursuit of perfection i'm not so interested in it anymore um and technically, I'm not a particularly good blacksmith, and it's not sort of false humility. I'm just not technically very good. My my skills and my talents lie in other areas, you know, which makes it important to have a team around me, and that's what's been really amazing, especially over the last couple of years, the last five years, the last seven years, really in the you know in lockdown years that we've been through. This, this, the feeling of having a team around us, so everyone has their different skills, and they do their different things, and and you know they've got to understand their roles. Um, I've gone off on a complete tangent. That's I don't, fine. I don't, I don't even know what we were talking don't about. Don't worry but, about it. I got you. I got you. you know, don't worry. I got you, Alex. Yeah. So this brings us to your your newest book, Blacksmith Apprentice to Master. What was it that made you want to write this book? Well. I think really it came it came out of all the courses and all the festivals we were running. So, um, you know, we we get asked. You you run courses. You know what it's like. You have these lovely people come and spend a day or a week or a weekend or whatever with you, learning our trade that we are immersed in the whole time. Um, and they'll ask, you know, what what is this thing? What what why is that thing? What, What's this piece of history? What what does that tool do? Where did what you know? What how are anvils made? And uh, you know, I've been teaching on and off for fifteen years or whatever. Um, and it kind of you know you kind of either make notes or you make mental notes. You think, oh, this yeah, you know, <laughs> there's some stuff people don't know the answers. We know the answers as a community, um, mostly. You know, and I and I love reading blacksmiths' books, and I talk to a lot of other blacksmiths, and you hear a story, you know, the the story of the uh, the journeyman nail that's you know is hammered through the guy's ear. That's a you know that's a drunken evening in a sauna in Sweden, and you're thinking, God, these are these are brilliant stories, you know. And this and so what I wrote was a story book, really. It's not a technical, and and I go back to this thing, and the first thing I say in the book is, I'm not a master blacksmith, and I. And I and I keep on repeating it because I don't want people to think that I'm standing from the kind of top of the hill saying this is this is our craft. What it is, it's written so that people can understand a, a, a kind of a glimpse of the life that we lead and the history that we're part of. I what I, I when you said that. I, I, it brings me back to when I was reading this book, I was actually, I was reading it and I was talking to my wife about it. And I said, what Alex did is I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you, this beautiful book, it's green and a big 
bold letters that says blacksmith and you wonder, is this going to be like a glossary? What is this? You, you interweave blacksmithing. You give some, you actually have some, uh, some like some, uh, exercises that people can do in it. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of rich history. I loved, I want to talk about the history, yep. but what I love about it is it is your voice. And then there are these moments throughout the whole story where you're just like saying, can you imagine, can you believe, can you imagine what that was like? Or there you were talking about when they were collecting coal and you were trying yep. to picture yourself. What That's one of my like. favorite pages. Actually, that is I, me too. Yeah, actually, into darkness. My, so it's called into darkness. My favorite pages are always when you're when you step forward and say and 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 like picture yourself in this situation where that you're talking about different types of fuel and you're talking about coal and you're painting this picture of these people who are in this these incredibly dark tunnels and they they were getting black lung and silicosis and they were coming home dirty and then a moment you said i know what it's like when i come home dirty and i'm covered in coal and my wife's mad at me because i you know i i took a bath and the I, if i didn't clean the bats up she's gonna kill me it was there was this there was this beautiful there it wasn't like um this you know textbook for a blacksmith it was your reading it alongside the the reader and saying can you and you know it's like it's like you're turning to the reader and saying can you believe this can you imagine can can you imagine what this is like well uh, and that was kind of it you know and some of it came out of a conversation i had with um he's a he's a he's a literary agent who called me up out of the blue and he he isn't my agent and actually i've only just got back in touch with him but he he called me and said, I've been wanting to write a book or someone to write a book on tools for 40 years since I was a kid. And, you know, do you think you could do this? So a guy called Tim Bates, who very generously kind of walked me through part of the process of uh, creating a, a book proposal. Um, and this was before the cookbook, weirdly enough. And I thought, yeah, I could, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty dyslexic. So writing for me is quite an interesting kind of experience. So I try and, I try and write how I think. And my brain, like a lot of our brains, us creatives is pretty left field. Uh, and so hopefully the kind of the voice of the book is my voice, which is wonderful to hear that you say that. Oh, it's totally. Kind of, 100%. It's kind of how I talk and communicate. And it's not particularly, it's not, you know, it's not that normal. It's not abnormal, but it's my own way of trying to kind of make sense of the world. You know, I've been immersed like you have in this metalworking world for 30 years. It's been my entire life and it's kind of a way of explaining that, but without preaching. And, and so I, I kind of had again, one of these, the same as the cook with these kind of bam moments. And it's mostly kind of when you're, you know, either you wake up in the night, like I said, or you're kind of working or, suddenly have this kind of thing i went right well there are seven traditional techniques of okay that and that could be debatable but it's kind of regarded as there are seven traditional techniques uh what those techniques we could argue about for for the next hundred years but there are seven years in a traditional apprenticeship there are seven chapters in the book but there are also three stages within any any blacksmith's career apprentice master sorry, apprentice journeyman to master. And it, it was suddenly so clear about how you structure a book. So the, the structure came first. Uh, then I had to choose the seven techniques that 
I've found that I thought were the most relevant. They're not necessarily techniques that I use or I'm particularly good at, some of them. Um, and then it kind of went backwards from there. And it's like, well, I, you know, the Somerset Coalfields, there's a chapter on that. Uh, I drive through the Somerset Coalfields every month to take my wares to market. You know, that was an obvious thing. And, and I drive at six o'clock in the morning, half past six in the morning. A sunrise is coming. I've been making my product and I'm taking it to market along the same road that people have been doing for 5,000 years. And this stuff is important to me, but it's also an important part of our tradition. And in a sense, no one's really writing about it. There's lots of technical books, and I didn't want this to be a technical book. There are little projects in it that people can do, you know, maybe if you're a beginner. I mean, part of it, uh, you know, and actually we've made an excerpt. We've taken those seven little projects and we've made them into a little booklet that I was giving away at the book launch. Um, But it could be like a little pocket manual for someone who wanted to try a new little technique or someone who's never been in the forge before. But they're laid out in such a way as that it's not too teachy. You're going to have to kind of work your way through it. Mm. Um, and a lot of this was inspired by uh, a book that was sent out in the 50s that they called the Commission for Rural Skills. Um, and they used to send out booklets out into the countryside because the, 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 you know, the craft of blacksmithing was dying. So in a way, we're kind of bringing back to life some of this post-industrial revolution stuff that's you know happening, and uh, and hopefully it was someone could sit and read a chapter, you know, at a time, and it's lots of different little stories, you know. I loved the fact I totally picked up on the different chapters. I I, I felt like this was very well thought out in terms of because there's a simplicity to it too like you talk about heat treatment you talk about fire welding you talk about damascus you you give down you know besides a lot of very succinct technical uh descriptions of things the historical stories were awesome like i got i got sucked into the whole you know nail making and i actually kind of want to talk about the nail making right now only because You you brought up that story the that nail maker story where they put the nail in the person's ear. I was I guess I guess I was arrogant in a sense of thinking that nail makers weren't a, a guilt. I thought just like I don't know I just never even thought about who made nails. And the nail the nail section was probably the most interesting to me because I really had no history about it. Tell me about what it was like back in the day the early days of nail makers because it was not an easy job it was fucking horrible i mean they were terrible you know, they were they were it was hell i mean they were white slaves you know and this someone gave me a book called a, a cap full of nails um a small uh kind of i think they were called pamphlets so it's about a 30 or 40 page uh you know booklet that had been written years ago and there's an excerpt from it in 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 blacksmith um a guy given it to me years ago when I was teaching at their their facility, and he said, "Hey, you know, have a look at this." And this is, you know, the first thing we teach when we teach classes is to teach nail making because you've got two of the basic skills: you've got drawing down and you've got upsetting. You can you can burn a hundred nails; it doesn't really matter. You know, it's a bit frustrating. Um, if you can make a good nail, you can you can do a lot of other things. You, you, you need to learn how to make tapers when you're smithing. 
and this guy had given me this book about the history of nails and about these these people who were you know they were the they were the dregs of society really i mean they were below the kind of you know the refuse collectors and that's no disrespect disrespect to refuse collectors but you know these guys were they were you know they were regarded as white slaves there there were um I should probably know, but I can't remember exactly how many thousands or tens of thousands there were of nail makers across across the UK, and and they were kind of kept in this loop. Fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Thank you, Jeff. You've you've obviously read it. Uh, I got it right here. I got notes. Got right I, got, I, I got notes like you, you would believe. Exactly. I could. I could. Uh, I could kind of get into the book here, but um, you know, I just found this fascinating. You know, and then I started making nails. I don't know why I started making nails. I just started making them. Uh, I used to work in a forge that was built in 1865 that we kind of didn't restore it as such. It was all fully working, but it had been empty for about 15 years when I first moved down to Somerset. And uh, I do write in the book, you know, there's a little bit about, uh, you know, I still do feel, and it's it's kind of a little wishy-washy, but I kind of feel like I was slightly possessed by the soul of the old blacksmiths who worked there because I started to really get into making hardware. You know, I'd been an artist blacksmith before. I'd been a jewelry maker and designer. I was really into sculpture. Uh, I was into conceptual art. I used to make conceptual jewelry, which was, you know, even more far out. Uh, And when I worked in this forge, I kind of, there was a big recession here in the UK. We didn't have any work. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go and make hardware. And I just kind of looked around the forge and there were some nails in the wall. I can I make some of those. There's some hooks. Oh, I can make some of those. S-hooks, all the kind of stuff that we were never taught. At, I, I mean, I went to art college, so I was I didn't do a traditional training. I haven't done seven years of apprenticeship. I haven't done a traditional, you know, a blacksmith training. Um, I didn't even know how to make tongs. So I was kind of rediscovering. And you start getting into making something. And you're making these nails, and I'm like, okay, I'll make 100, or I'll make 200. And you, the pursuit of making the perfect nail. And then you suddenly kind of looking around, and it, and I just became, you know, marginally obsessed with the whole history of nail making, the, the nail the nail itself, what a significance it had to blacksmiths. Uh, and then I took them to market, and people were buying them. I was making thousands of nails. I mean, I've probably made well over 10,000 nails in my mm. time over the years. I don't make many anymore. And people were buying them. They were like, oh, I've got a beautiful house. I've got these old nails, and this is exactly how they used to be. You know, we'd be making nails now the same way they were made when Christ was stuck up on the cross. And, mm. you know, and it's the same thing. And and. A nail, almost more than anything else, shows that kind of continuity of history, and that and the and the kind of strength of history. And you know, you build an empire for good or for worse. I'm I'm not a promoter of the empire, but you know, for better or for worse, you build ships from hemp, rope, and flax for sails, and and nails for the planks. You know, actually, this will this. I'm going to go on another tangent. So we, we've just been commissioned to make 4,000 rivets for a Saxon ship. Wow. Yeah, this is crazy. So, uh, And this, again, this has been two or three years in the making. We're making uh, for the Sutton Hoo project. I don't know if you've heard of Sutton Hoo, which is a uh, – Sutton Hoo was a Dane ship. I think it was found – it was built in around 600 AD, somewhere between 600 and 800 AD, and it was found in the 1940s. 
um, and it's a 30 meter by 10 meter uh, Saxon ship, the burial ship. Um, and they're rebuilding a life-size replica of of what was found. I mean, check out Sutton Who. Any of you guys who are into kind of history and uh, that kind of thing, anything to do, uh, and I say in inverted commas, I'm even doing the hand motion for inverted commas, uh, Viking ship, because it, 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 they weren't Vikings, they were Danes. But um, we've just been asked to make 4,000 four-inch rivets from wrought iron and what are called robes, which are basically diamond shape, um, uh, kind of uh, yeah, a little. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, washers, like a diamond shaped washer okay. that goes on the inside of the ship. And so this is, you know, and, and I was talking about history. This is the continuity. I mean, this is so exciting for us, me, who I've been obsessed with, you know, nails, blacksmithing. I've I've followed the story of Sutton Hoo since I was a you know a little boy. Uh, and now we get to make these these rivets. They are quite big dome head rivets uh, for this for this for the ship that they're building. And you can see this kind of flow of history all the way back to 600 AD and uh, and back beyond you know the crucifixion of the nails and back beyond into Persian times and beyond and beyond and beyond and and that. Maybe as I get older, I find that more and more kind of exciting, that connection with history. So I'm looking at the this boat right now, the Sutton Who. It is amazing. It is almost like there's like, um, I want to say like an Egyptian quality to it. It has these very high, uh, the, the, I don't know the goddamn terminology of boats, but it is an incredible looking boat with like this little lean to in the middle. It's yeah, going to be so they, amazing. Yeah, it's going to be uh, incredible. And they're not sure whether this particular boat was ever sailed, but the 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 um, the Norse boats, I suppose, is a collective term. I think that's the correct term. Um, the Norse boats were designed to be able to twist and to flex with the waves. So they're very long and broad, and they don't have much of a, um, I think it's called a draft. I don't think they have much depth in them. They're like big planks. Yeah, they are quite Egyptian, and they were designed to be able to kind of take the battering of the sea. Um, and they were held together. The oak planks were held together with these wrought iron bolts. Now, there are only, I think, there were none, I think there were only four found in the original dig. and they. But what was left was the imprints of, of the, you know, of the iron was left in the sand where the ship, so there were no planks found, uh, and there were 4,000 little kind of pop marks around the, the excavation. So they've worked out through analysis um, what type of material was used and what shape that the bolts were that were originally used and forged in, in Scandinavia. That's an incredible an incredible honor that you're going to be doing it. It's a, it looks like it, it's a Sutton Who, S-U-T-T-O-N, second word, H-O-O. Let's go yeah. and look up a Sutton Who. This is a beautiful, and it's or it looks like it's with oars. Yeah, they, yeah. So it's, yeah, they're, they're, I don't know how many oarsmen there were, but they were rowed and they were sailed. You know, they had sails and oarsmen. Uh, I mean, originally we were asked to make the axes, so we made 
I went to Sweden to uh, go see my master Frederick, um, and we made some replicas of um, hewing axes, like shipwrights axes. Um, very broad for for hewing the planks. Um, these were actually copies from something from the Bayer tapestry, which uh, may or may not have been right. They were kind of historical replicas, I suppose, but made in and it's all made in the modern way. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's we're using traditional materials. Sure. So the rivets are being made on our coal iron press. Well, part of them are, and then they're forged. But we're using kind of this. And this is what I really like about the scene at the moment. We're using, you know, the combinations of uh, machinery that's available nowadays, uh, material that's being made. So this is new wrought iron. It's it's being rolled modern wrought iron, as it were. It's only made by one company in the world. Um, But to produce something that is, you know, a thousand years old. This brings me back to your uh, a section of your book that I was back to the nails and uh, mm. and actually, but with ships too. The, you have this whole thing about uh, nails being currency, and you have uh, the story of the ship coins. Do you want to talk about the ship coins? <laughs> yeah, I love the story of the ship coins. Yeah, it's fucking good. Now, like all blacksmiths, you know, we're quite prone to having a drink and to telling a yarn uh, once in a while. You know that. Truth is something that can be occasionally sort of dressed up. So this is a story. This is part of the research. So when I was doing the book, I had I had a kind of I and I'll just go back a bit and then I'll come back to the okay. chips nails just I'll to explain the kind of context. So you know, I created a structure for the book first, like a blueprint. And so I had these seven chapters, seven techniques. You know, the first technique is drawing down. And I wanted that chapter to be all about nails because this is your fundamental technique uh, and different types of kind of stories, anecdotes, uh, historical and technical about about nails. And so through my research, I found this story about um, when um, when the Europeans went to um, the kind of the Polyponesia. Uh, and when they came to the Australian coast and Australasia and, and that part of the world, when they traveled there, they, uh, they, they came to these islands and um, many times there had never been any Westerners seen. And a lot of the tribes people there and the islanders never would have, um, they probably wouldn't have seen wooden, sh- you know, big sailing ships. They would have had canoes. And the story goes that uh, you know they also they didn't have a source of iron, so you know all their all their weapons and tools would have been stone or shell, or, you know even wood, um, and that's all they had was the materials that that were on the island, and these these kind of these these crazy westerners arrive and these travellers arrive in this boat and they've got this stuff called iron, and what they used to do. Um, is trade iron for sex with the natives, which was a- apparently quite encouraged by some of the tribe's leaders. The parents, until the, the parents, as you say <laughs> in the books, you're you say the in the parents, books, yeah, the, the fathers were just like, get on that fucking <laughs> yeah, boat, yeah. And get us some fucking nails, yeah, get us some nails. I mean, they wouldn't have, they, they probably would have traded, you know, uh, 
masses of different things. But uh, and this is the kind of point. What I love about the nails is until the captain discovered that parts of the boat were f- were, <laughs> were falling, they were falling apart because because of the sailors' uh, lustiness. They were pulling them out they of were, the boat, <laughs> pulling them out of the boat. <laughs> so you know and. Okay, how you know, how true is this? I can imagine that something along those lines, you know, probably happened. Uh, it's such a wonderful story that I, and I had to go in the book. And I, and, I, and I think the follow-on from that is in future uh, expeditions, then, you know, they, they would take bags of nails with them or they would take iron billets. I mean, I, you know, like iron billets were often used as ballast in ships anyway. Uh but I'd, I, yeah, I just love that whole kind of the concept of using nails, pulling them out of yeah. the boats, and, you know, you can go and have your way with one of the local ladies. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Well, I mean, that that in, in and of itself was interesting, but what made a lot more sense were people were burning houses down in order to collect the nails. That yeah. was that story was fascinating, but that's but that's quite well documented. I mean, in in many different sort of in many different guises, in a way. I mean, part of the difficulty for me for writing the book was to try and condense it. We had a word, we had a page count. So, the difference between writing this book and the and the uh, cookbook is the cookbook was self published, um, and the blacksmith book was commissioned by a, a, a publisher here in the UK. Um, and a word of advice to anyone out there thinking of self-publishing a book don't absolute you know yeah if Why? you want to lo- if you want to lose money just just burn the money to start with <laughs> and then don't worry about the two years worth of work creating a beautiful object <laughs> right. message to tony yeah cancel our cancel our plans anyone making a book <laughs> get a publisher anyway uh and weirdly enough the publisher for the blacksmith book uh they commissioned it off the back of the cookbook. So it kind of all worked out very nicely. But anyway, I digress once again. Um, what was the question? It was, it was about the burning. It was, ah, it was the yeah, idea yeah. that people were moving and then they would burn their houses down to get the nails. Yeah, so there's quite a few different uh, kind of versions or different documentations of this story is that, that, that you know, obviously iron was incredibly valuable. Nowadays, we live in a, in a kind of a, in a system whereby labor is expensive and material is cheap in, in those days it was reversed the material was incredibly expensive especially in america uh, or the americas that you know a, a lot of the billets the wrought iron billets would have been used as ballast they would have been shipped to the states uh they would have been you know pounded into stock they would have been forged into nails if you're if you're exploring out new frontiers, you're you're traveling with a bag of nails. You may not have a blacksmith. You know, there, there was no one there. Right. Uh, I don't know about the traditions of the uh, American Indians 
Native American Indians, I think is maybe the correct, you know, I'm not very PC. Anyway, the... Don't worry about the, it. Yeah, I won't, I won't worry about it. But the people who actually live there, uh, I don't know about their blacksmithing tradition, so I'm kind of presuming that, you know, the frontier settlers would have had a stock of nails with them. And, you you know, you build it, you come to a place and you build yourself a shelter and maybe you stay there for a season or maybe you're overwintering. You're not just going to leave them there. So they would they would burn the houses down. Um, you know, there are other stories about people, other people burning houses down so that they could get the iron because they were so poor. That was, but that, the, was that was the easiest way to extract the nails was to burn yeah. the house down and sift through the sift through the soot. Yeah, basically. I mean, timber's readily available. You know, the whole bloody planet's covered in wood. We used to be. So th- that's, you know, that's not something. And you can, obviously, you can build a shelter with wood pegs and nails. You don't need iron nails. But if you've got iron nails, you're not going to leave them there unless you know someone else is coming after you or, or whatever. So the kind of the idea is that the, you would burn your house down. You'd sift through the nails in the morning. Whatever, whatever, it's cooled down. You put them back in the back, and you'd go off to your next place. The, the nail part, the nail section, was so interesting to me. Once again, that a lot of it, maybe this was a, this was in the with the UK a nail maker in UK, and the the difference between what was a nail master and what was a fogger. Okay, so the foggers were the kind of guys in between. So they were a go between. So you had the nail masters, uh, you had the you had the nail makers, and then you had the foggers, and then you had the nail masters. So there's this kind of hierarchy. So the nail masters were the kind of the big bosses, um, and they would be the kind of uh, I suppose they would be the retailer. So you have okay. So to paint a picture, you've you've got rows of houses of families making nails. Mum, dad, two kids, three kids, five kids, kids. You know, they're starting at um, probably four, five, six years old making tax. And and at the end of the week, uh, or the or whenever, you know, the month or the you know, the days, whatever the 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 head of the household would take and he would often carry them in a cap, and that's why that book was called a cap full of nails. Um They'd take them to the foggers. So the foggers were the guys, they were the go-betweens. Like a broker? Like a broker, exactly. I'm just trying to kind of find the word. But they weren't just the brokers. So they would be the ones who would buy the nails, but they would also sell the the iron. So the kind of, the nail master is the the big boss at the top. And then you've you've got the nail makers at the bottom. And the foggers are the guys that in between. So the foggers will sell the iron and what they used to do is they sell the stock at one price and then they would buy the the finished nails back at another price and they would often fix the difference so basically always making profit and then i then they would pass the nails on to the to the nail masters but what they'd also do is it would often be the landlord of the local pub so they would give credit. So, you know, John Smith, blacksmith, working hard all week with his family. He's gone off to the fogger. He wants to get his paycheck at the end of the week. You know, we've made 
X amount of pounds of nails. The fucker happens to have a shop out the back of the pub, and the guy's, you know, he's bloody exhausted. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll have a pint. And the fogger will go, oh, we'll put that on your tab or mm. on your credit. You know, don't you? And then, so they used to kind of keep, they used to keep the Smiths kind of, you know, constantly ticking over. So they could never really quite break out. They could never really make enough to kind of get on top. And they, and they were pretty mean buggers, basically. And, uh, and they were kind of, you know, I said it in the book, they were notorious for having these kind of three different sets of weights. So you'd give, they'd switch the weights around when they were weighing out the iron and when they were weighing it back in so that they were always making a little bit extra on the side. It sounded like the, you know, in your, you know, in your mind, what a nail maker is, is different from the, the fact that, I mean, these are just, I mean, it was, people were taken advantage of for their yeah. labor and, the, and yeah. their position in society and it yeah. just seems as though the, the the nail market was so huge, but it was off the backs of these, you know, really indentured servants. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and they would be making, you know, they'd be making thousands and thousands of nails. I mean, there is a story that a, a, a good nail maker can make 100 nails an hour. I mean, what? that's insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, whether they were using trip hammers, I've read that a couple of different places. I can't, uh, and I kind of put that. In, I mean, I can make two hundred and fifty in a day, and that's that's me done. I think the best I've made a nail from start to finish, from in the fire to finished head, was about one minute forty five seconds. You know, and you can do them in two heats, and you can do that. You know, but I can't sustain that all day long. But these these guys were making a hundred an hour. So you're making. You know, they're a thousand nails a day, churning them out. It's insane. I, I was I was fascinated by by it. that was all very eye opening to me, and I think that's one of the reasons why this book is so great, is because besides the putting in you know ex- explanations of things, you have this very rich history of what was happening. Um, yeah. Tell that story about the uh, the nail maker and the ear. That was kind of gruesome, but at the same time, uh, the, yeah, the journeyman. I mean, just to go back a bit, I think the book was written, um, you know, to give it some more context. It's written, it's written for blacksmiths, but not exclusively. Yeah, you know. So I wanted to write a book that hopefully, you know, someone like yourself who knows a lot about smithing would enjoy to read. You know, someone who's a master could could read it and maybe learn something, or just purely enjoy the kind of visual aspect the photography is beautiful the design work that spike has done is you know it's incredible we've produced a beautiful product but i wanted someone who'd never even heard of a blacksmith before to be able to understand what the life is like you know and so we i'm kind of constantly throughout the book trying to balance between putting my reputation on the line as to you know does he know what he's talking about and that's a really scary, really scary thing to do. But we can talk about that later. Um, you know, so you've got to have this kind of play between the language of what, you know, what how we speak to each other. You know, when I say, oh, you know, beautiful, nice bit of upsetting, mate. You know what I'm talking about. Someone down the road hasn't got a faintest clue. They think I've just made you cross, you know. So, 
but I wanted it to be entertaining enough for Smiths, but also, you know, translatable enough for, for the for the average person. I thought it was very street. approachable. I thought it was very approachable that somebody who maybe they watched a TV show and they'd be interested in it, this would be a very, very good... I think that the interesting yeah. thing when you say when you say uh, from apprentice to master, there is a lot of like, there's a lot there for people who don't know a lot about blacksmithing, but people like people who do know a lot about blacksmithing, there are all these great stories. So, I mean, I think you hit the nail. I mean, I hate to say it, but you did hit the nail on the head. In terms terms of, I mean, in terms of, you even had a whole section on like the expressions. I love how blacksmithing expressions translate to modern day, uh, speak and you have a whole section on that. I I think it's very comprehensive, but at the yeah. same time, it's not overly, it's not over people's heads. I mean, this is something that I would give someone. If somebody said to me, "I wanted to know about blacksmithing," I would say, "This is the book for you." Have a look at that, and that's great. And and that that story you were mentioning earlier about the the journeyman nail yeah. is really a kind of it's it's one of my favorite stories and it came uh, we, i went over to sweden well i tried to go to sweden every year haven't been able to um and obviously we've done a lot of kind of we forged a little bit in the swedish influence a lot of our tools are swedishly influenced and obviously frederick has been a a, a huge huge uh, this is frederick Thalin, um huge influence on me as a as a person and a smith and uh we went over for a competition a few years ago and we were the kind of english you know the english contingent british contingent went over there and there's obviously there's a lot of forging there's a lot of fire there's a lot of drinking and eating and and a lot of saunas and and one of these stories came i can't quite remember whether it came from one of the swedish guys or, or a swiss guy uh who was telling this story about how you know when you when you pass your journeyman certificate um basically the the rest of the journeymen in, in the town or village would take you out to the pub get you pissed you know there's plenty of ale and and there's a whole thing in the book about the journeyman nail which is kind of like your like a tag you know it's kind of like a signature piece that you might forge uh you know it's really difficult to have a modern day like a kind of facebook message board you know where you'd put your journeyman nail up and, and so you would have forged that and they'd they'd uh, basically pin you to the table they'd drive a nail through your earlobe into the table uh and then you would have to swear your fealty to the journeyman way with you know there's various things that you have to agree to do uh, and various ways to agree on how how to behave when you are a journeyman um and you know once you've once you've once you've sworn your um you know to up to uphold the values of of our guild and our craft they pull the nail out and then i heard that they it was replaced with a gold ring yeah um and that gold ring would give you enough funds so when you go on a journeyman trip i mean you have to explain about what a journeyman is but you know, when you go on a journeyman trip, you you are often not allowed back within your parish bounds for um, sometimes up to three years. So you might be you might be two or three countries away. You might be, you know, miles and miles and miles away. And as a journeyman, you're not really meant to accrue a lot of money. Um, so the gold ring would often 
Well, I've heard two different stories. One is that um, it would pay for your your return journey back to your hometown. You're carrying, and a gold ring is is it's a couple of grams of gold. You know, it's quite valuable. And the other one I've heard is that it would it would pay for a Christian burial. Because <laughs> uh, in those times, you didn't get buried for free. You had to pay a priest to bury. And this is also the same reason that I've heard that why pirates wear a gold earring in their earlobe. Huh. So they could always pay for a Christian burial. These are, this is kind of slightly, you know, this is mythology. Well, this is kind of anecdotal it's a storytelling story. mythology. It's, it's good a good story, story, isn't it? A lovely story. I but like, also what I love I like is the- that where if, if you broke your vows, uh, they would rip the ring yeah. out of your ear and it would split your ear and that was a sign of mistrust so if a journeyman smith came to your forge and said he wanted a day's work and he had a split ear you wouldn't give him any work i love that part i i I think that the whole i i liked i liked the the the, all the stories of the guilds and the journeyman there was one part where when the journeyman would go to different uh different uh on their way going to different smithies that they would yeah. look in that you you'd find a tree not too far and then you'd see all the nails from different uh blacksmiths who had been traveling through and it was almost like you could tell who was there but also when they were there and also whether or not it was a good shop or not yeah yeah so if and that was kind of that's what i mean about this is kind of like medieval facebook yeah or instagram or whatever you know you want to kind of social media so you know those days you know, if people can remember the days when we didn't have such uh, lines of communication. So this would have been a way of leaving a message. You know, you've got, you know, people would have signature nails and it could be as simple as a nail with your your initials on it. It might have, uh, I mean, we've got some journeyman, there's some journeyman nails in the book that all the boys forged at the workshop, um, you know, during the, during the photo shoot for the book, uh, the photographers there was three days, and I said to the guys, "Right, everyone, forge a nail." And these are kind of they're they're a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, you know, you might have a little motif, and that would be your signature. And when you arrive at the forge, you know, maybe as you're leaving, you just bang it in into a nail tree, which might have been a beam in the forge, or it might have been an actual tree or a post. And if you turn up to a forge. And you've got hundreds of nails. You're like, yeah, this guy's cool. He's, you know, he's he's welcoming. Yeah. You know, these traditions are really, uh, on one hand, they've really died out, and on the other hand, they're still kind of in existence. They still, you know, if people turn up to my forge, so traditionally, by guild law, if someone turned up to your forge, um, you would give them a day's work for food and board. A journeyman ship was the, you know, that they were wandering. You know, you would walk from place to place and you would travel and you would pass information and you'd go to the pub in the evening and everyone would be like, hey, so you just came from, you know, this is, you know, imagine times when your next door village was a long way away. Some people had never left their villages. 
you know, it's pretty incredible to kind of think about and, and show the craftsmen, and this applied to all the craftspeople, because uh, in most, in a lot of medieval times, you weren't allowed to travel freely. You had to have a passport. People think nowadays having a COVID passport is a radical kind of thing. It's, it's very common. It's very normal throughout the history of, of time. And and smiths would wonder, oh, and you know, carpenters and glass blowers and sculptors, and you know, I mean, there's an amazing bit. If anyone has ever read uh, a book called uh, *Narcissus and Goldmund* by um, Hermann Hess, who's a rather famous writer, you've probably heard of Hermann Hess. Yeah, um, and he wrote a a, a book called *Narcissus and Goldmund* or *Goldblum*. Anyway. And there's this beautiful description in it of a sculptor wandering through Europe through the plague times and through war. And he wanders on a journeymanship through the different countries and he passes bits of information on. And he gets bits of information from each village. So this kind of is like medieval Internet. And that's and I was just kind of this idea of being brewing around in my head for for about four or five years, thinking, well, this is what the blacksmiths used to do. They'd wander, and you'd walk to the next door village, and you'd go and work for someone else, and you'd learn some skills. And the smith would go, oh, that's how you do that. We do it this way. And this still happens, but now it happens on Instagram. Well, the idea that there are these like messages is it's an old it's such a great old story because i remember hearing about during the i guess it was during the depression when people were looking for borders or people were looking for places to stay they would see like they would have like this code people mm. would have a code that they would write on like uh fences and stuff and the code was whether or not this was a nice person or whether or not this the, the person with the house was cruel or i i, I love the idea of that there was this uh, this communication between uh, journeyman blacksmiths in trying to find new shops to go to. I, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been to have that three-year three journey. And then the, from what your book says, Blacksmith, Apprentice, and Master, is that, that, that the guild wouldn't let anyone... You couldn't make money until you passed, your, you passed it. You, pa you became a master, right? Yeah, so... We think nowadays of a masterpiece as being the pinnacle of someone's career. You say he's he's created a masterpiece. Within the within the craft world, uh blacksmithing or whatever, a masterpiece is the gateway to your future as a craftsman. So it's actually a starting point, which I've you know, and this is kind of stuff I've I've kind of discovered whilst doing the book. I find it fascinating. Me too. Um, and that's, you know, one one of the wonderful things about writing a book is that you learn, you know, this is a huge learning kind of curve for me. So, you know, so you have to go to your guild, you're a journeyman, you've done your apprenticeship, then you're a journeyman, then you and you want to become a master. So you present a masterpiece and they were kind of set pieces, I think to, to a degree. Um, I think there was a kind of, you know, it would have to show such a broad range of skills and you present this masterpiece to a guild of other masters. Then you are given your master's certificate and they were physical pieces of paper. Uh, 
but it's only then that you're allowed to sell ironwork. So if you're an apprentice or a journeyman, you're not allowed to sell your own work. So nowadays, anyone can make anything and sell it anywhere, and it doesn't, and which is right. a good thing and a, and a bad thing. But I mean, you know, it's good and bad of everything. So, but until you were a master, you you had to be paid by someone else. I like that. You know, it made me think about how hard it must have been back then. But one of the things I liked that you had brought up was that one of the rules. One of the rules for the journeyman smith was they were never to get married or have kids, or basically start a family because it's it's as if if you're not we're not allowing you to make money so don't fuck up and all of a sudden need to make money you know there was the, it seemed as though that there was a lot of uh pressure on these people to get proficient really you know the correct way yeah i think so uh but i think that was you know across the board you know in all of a kind of in in most walks of life you know life was a was was a pretty hard struggle for most people i mean it is still a, a, a struggle nowadays but the basic requirements of electricity water you know health uh food are commonly available to at least the western world and generally most of the northern hemisphere it, you know in vast swathes of our history you know you, you've got a you know you've got a you scratch a living uh you know especially as a craftsman you know in a job that's incredibly physical so you know you start off i mean the apprentices would start somewhere between 11 and 14 they're basically given food and board and and that's how you live but they're given a trade and that trade will see them through for the rest of their life you know, if they learn the trade and they do well, then they can progress and they can earn a little bit more money. Journeymen were not allowed to, um, they weren't allowed to get married. Um, they weren't allowed to have children. Uh, they weren't allowed to be in any debt of any form. So, you know, they spent this time kind of wandering. I mean, in one sense, it was kind of, must have been pretty, pretty cool. It must have been cool, but at I mean, the I same spent, time, I spent twenty. I, I spent. Sorry, I, but it must have been a lot of pressure because I mean, it isn't. You know, nowadays you can watch a couple of YouTube videos, learn how to pick something up, and then you can sell. You can sell something within. I mean, Alex Steele did a video. I'm gonna let, let me make something now and see if I can sell it. And he did it in the five seconds. You know, it's like there is this. It is a different life. Yeah, it but, is a totally I mean, different life though. Yeah, but is is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It is interesting because I talk to when I talk to guys like Pat Quinn and I talk to I go I, I'm I'm all over the place in regards to this issue because I yeah. totally have changed as I've gotten older. I'm far more I don't know if I've become more conservative on the situation or I used to be like, ah, do whatever what the hell you want. I don't what does it doesn't really matter to me. But because I feel very strongly about what the role of the modern-day blacksmith is and the concept of keeping something alive and not just making what other people are making, I feel it's very important to take classes. I feel it's very important yeah. for, for guys to kind of understand where things come from. I also feel like it's important that people see struggle. I don't think th I think that there's this strange. It might be a cultural thing. It might be a uh, it might be a generational thing too. But a lot of people see 
instant satisfaction and instant gratification because of social media, because of, you know, people are becoming famous for doing nothing. And they're assuming it's like, well, what about me? And I think that, I think that people don't want to struggle and I, I don't, they're not prepared to do, you know, the journeyman's life of you have three years. You can't do shit for, you know, seven years. You're, you're fucking, well, you can't sell a fucking thing for 10. I don't, people yeah, at least, I mean, but, for it. but it might not even be 10. I mean, right. you know, on one hand they were paid and they were paid a good wage. And, you know, and so it's not like they were working for free. They weren't slaves, but you know, so they're earning a living and, and, and the journeyman had quite a, a, a high social status, you know, not as high as a master, but they were pretty, pretty well respected. You know, an apprentice is in a trade. They are respected right. for their own. They have a station in society and they knew that place and they understood it. And that this hierarchy, for, for, for better or for worse, and this is an ongoing argument, that at least people understood and knew where they were within the social structure. Now that that's right. a, that's a that's a different argument, you know. I think a part of my kind of uh, struggle I have with this is, you know, I know lots of really beautiful, amazing knife makers, but they can't forge anything else, right? You know, exactly. So, I mean, I you know, I okay, I've been in this business for thirty years. I only became a blacksmith probably seven years ago. I have been blacksmithing for 30. But it's not until I understood really my my own nature, my place in this craft. Uh not, you know, blacksmithing is a kind of as much is as much a concept and it is much a life style to a degree. You know, I'm not saying I have to kind of wear my leather apron to bed. You know, it's not that kind of, although, you know, it's not, uh, on Saturdays. <laughs> all right, it's fine. all right. All right. All right I'm, again, asking, I'm not asking. I'm not asking. Down that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? It's kind of, it's not like we kind of, you know, uh, we don't, uh, I don't stomp around as a blacksmith all day long, but, you know, it's kind of about understanding and about ab- absorption of a culture and of, of a history and your place in history. And uh, and this is just one opinion. I mean, you know, I might just be talking shit, but for me, I didn't really absorb or understand what it was to be a blacksmith. And this is partly why I think I'm not a very good technical blacksmith because I'm much more interested in the kind of the culture, the history, the the emotion, the kind of uh, inspiration of it than I am in just pure technicality. Yes, you can watch a YouTube video. That's great. Yes, you can reproduce that video. Wonderful, beautiful stuff. But have you? Do you understand the concept, and do you understand the past, and do you understand where these techniques are coming from, and do you understand the importance of 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 how they've shaped the world around you? And if you're just repeating, if you're just a parrot for making money, that doesn't make you a craftsman. I completely agree with you, and I'd like to. Add, this is something that I think. I think a lot of this also has to do with our age in terms of also how long we've been at this as metal workers, because yeah. I see blacksmithing more like a philosophy, and yeah. I think yeah. it's it's the cl- it's the closest thing to religion that I have, and a lot of it has to do with dedication, with discipline, 
with the consistent, I consistently want to learn. I, I'm, I want to be a mm. student for life. Like I, I have no, I have no trappings of my status. I really don't. I, I I'm now for just turned 48. I couldn't be happier to be in the position that I am and to be very accepting of learning and discipline. I mean, Uri Hoffi didn't start to become blacksmith until he was in his fifties. You know, he, he did Mm. not, he did, he started back in his fifties in his fifties when he was 50, you know, he wasn't a blacksmith until he was 50. So I feel to me, it's more of like a philosophy and I agree with you completely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's definitely, I, I just, I don't want it to die out. I want there be to be people like you who are bringing uh, this into popular culture. I mean, the fact that you'd be able to kind of pu- pull out two books, and I, I have a feeling there's going to be some more, that you're able to kind of, you're like the, almost like a herald to the past because it's like you're giving this. And what you're also doing is, is you're making stuff, you're making uh, tools and you're making books and you're making content that's approachable to the modern day uh, customer or someone who's just interested, you know? Yeah, I hope so. And that's kind of our mission to, or, you know, my mission to a certain degree is to make it relevant to the 21st century. I mean, I've, you know, I've said it a lot. It's like, you know, making craft, food, cooking, uh, you know, farming, all these, these, these traditional ways of living. Very approachable. It's a, it's a, it's a very, what do they call it? It's a, it's an approachable delivery system to blacksmithing, what you're doing. Yeah, hopefully. And, and, and I want people to see the relevance that just because it's an ancient craft doesn't mean that it's not relevant. And it's probably more relevant now uh, in the 21st century than it has been in the last few hundred years, because people need this sort of counterpoint. You know, I'm not a technophobe. You know, we're here, I've got a super microphone that's kind of glaring at me on my Mac and I've got my iPhone and blah, blah, blah. And this is how we run that. I run the entire business off, off my smartphone. Right through through apps and through a website, and it's absolutely fucking brilliant. I love it and hilarious. Because we, you know, well, I mean, it's it's just a tool, you know. But it's hilarious. And so we're can... blacksmiths, and then but we we focus on. I mean, like you can't get much older school than a blacksmith. But the fact is, we 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 need we need you know this this incredible technology in order to make sure that it but, stays alive. Yeah, but. But blacksmiths have always been innovators. We've always been at the, at the you know, I'm not an innovator and, and let's not get me wrong. I, uh, you know, I had a bit of trouble plugging in the mic. <laughs> you know? well, I mean, I mean that's fine. Uh, but we are kind of, uh, we're open. We, we, we can take the technology, you know, it's wonderful having Steve in the workshop. Who's, who's kind of my kind of tech, my go-to tech guy. Uh, with the YouTube, we're br- going to bring out a whole new YouTube channel next year. We're going to st- start pushing the filming. Uh, you know, we love the Instagram and the social media, and it, and it, but it's you can't shy away from it. So, you know, you can be the best, one of the best blacksmiths I know, a guy called Rob Hills, who is a lifelong friend, went to college together, the godparent to my children. He doesn't have time for social media. He's like, I, I just can't be bothered. And the guy is so eye-wateringly skilled, but he's just not interested in learning that new way of, of, of you know, of, of, of showing people what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're the best technician in the world, if you're sitting in a workshop on your own, surrounded by the most beautiful things, if no one sees them. 
or if no one uses them. And for me, yeah. that's a really, it's a really important aspect. So I, I'll never be a master blacksmith because I'm not interested in just focusing on those particular minutia technical points. I'm interested in showing people what we do in, in, in being part of popular culture, but with respect to the ancient ways. So it's this, you know, it's this balance again between having stuff that functions in a, in a modern home. So all the stuff we, we only forge stainless steel now for all our kitchenware, stainless steel and copper because it's dishwasher proof. You know, not the knives, obviously, right. or the axes, but that's a slightly separate thing. So, you know, and, and people are kind of like, what, well, that's all stainless steel? Like, yeah, so it's black stainless, the kind of thing we've, we've, we didn't invent, but it's something that I'm kind of pushing the whole time. So because it's, it's part of modern day living, so it makes life easier for modern day living. But they're still, it's still forged in the techniques that are 5,000 years old. You have this kind of, yeah, constant juggling act and balance between the between the past and the and the present. Speaking of popular culture, you allude to TV stuff a little bit in the book that you had opportunities and stuff like that. I'd like you to tell the story how your scene with other blacksmiths was cut from the Angelina Jolie movie. <laughs> I read this book, Alex Paul. I read the whole fucking thing. I have notes and everything. So you were you were oh, almost hysterical. in Maleficent. That I was almost in Maleficent. That was fucking hysterical. So you know, many moons ago, you know, quite a few years ago, I think Sam, my eldest, was was two or three. So it must have been about ten. I don't know when Maleficent came out. It must have been about ten years ago. I mean, we were fucking broke, man. I mean, we are kind of, you know looking at an empty fridge, no milk for tea in the morning type broke. And I got a, there was a kind of a call out, a shout out from the Blacksmiths Association here in the UK saying, we're looking for, for blacksmiths to go into um, a, a film, a movie. Uh, and I signed up and I'm like, yeah, this sounds good. They're paying 300 quid a day, which in those days was, you know, it was a lot of money. That's still a um, lot of money. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, still a lot of money. <laughs> but it was a lot more money then. Right. Uh, and and food, you know, three three meals a day, and you could go and be part, and we're going to Elstree Studios. So a little bit of the backstory is I used to go to a, a, a prep school, a private prep school, boarding school. I don't know what you call them in the States. Um, called Elstree. And it was it used to be situated at the Elstree Film Studios, which is just outside London. And for me, it was an opportunity. So, you know, they said, right, you can come. We're going to pay you meals and you get to go to Elstree Studios for the day and film with Angelina Jolie, which. Who's going to say no to that? Who's going to say no to that? Little did we know that Angelina wasn't actually going to turn up. But with hindsight, it was going to be pretty obvious. So there were 30 blacksmiths. Um, who <laughs> who were then all dressed in kind of leathers and furs and kind of medievally blacksmithy gear, which was absolutely hysterical. Uh, and I distinctly remember being sprayed down with baby oil by a very nice Eastern European chap 
<laughs> who, who gently rubbed it into my bare chest with a little bit of soot, you know, to make it kind of authentically sweaty. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the funny thing was that, the, you know, that everyone's kind of, we're on set and everyone is pretending. So they wanted professional blacksmiths to pretend to be blacksmiths. Right. And at one point they were like, no, no, you can't do it like that. You're all too good. <laughs> so, so we all had to kind of be like not as good. At, you know, there's people actually, and there were guys who turned up on set with their own tools. Yeah. And then they had their tools taken away and they were giving a hammer that you hit against the anvil and, and it makes sparks. It's got these little spark cappers in the end of it. Uh, and so they'd got, yeah, 30 professional blacksmiths to kind of pretend to be blacksmiths on set. I pumped a gas bellows for several hours back and forth. Lots of flame. Uh, great day. Uh, we thought the whole thing was absolutely hysterical and got fed well. And then they cut the whole lot. See, in my mind, when you told, when you, when I read that story in my mind, I'm, I'm picturing the scene and it's like two bays of blacksmiths and they're all striking in unison like like the rowers on the uh on a boat you know like the oarsmen like in my mind yeah. it was very like you know like propaganda soviet block everyone's in line and they're all you're all forging something for and I'm, I'm picturing angelina jolie on this like on like a parapet or something like that kind of like you know like fiddling with her fingers and, you know, preparing for some sort of war with her blacksmiths. But uh, now that I know that you were just like rubbed up with some baby oil and soot <laughs> and hitting some anvil with some cap taps, handles, hammers, that just makes me so funny. When, I mean, it was, it, it was Hollywood to the extreme. I mean, it really was. Just, I mean, that's what I found so absurd about it. That they, I mean, they could have just had the extra. I mean, they had, so thirty professional blacksmiths, and they had about sixty extras. And what I I couldn't work out why they were paying us to come and do that when they could have just got the extra. They wanted this kind of authenticity, but they they didn't actually want authenticity. I mean, someone in an office somewhere must have gone, "Hey, let's just get loads of blacksmiths, and they'll come right. and do it." Yeah, I just wonder why. I wonder, I was listening to a, a podcast from a blacksmith years ago and it was so, the guy was so boring and I, all I could think of is how can you make this boring? And I, and I, to me, I just don't know why. Cause in the book, you kind of mentioned a couple movies that, you know, that were inspired by blacksmiths. I can't figure out why they haven't figured out that if you made a well-cut real blacksmith movie, it would be really interesting. It would be great. You know, yeah. you could do the story of the of the journeyman blacksmith. That would be an f- awesome story of a guy cruising around and then put pin him to the table and throw the th- thing n- nail in his ear. And well, there's a, you know, there's a ton of I'm movie. A, I don't know why. You, you and me, mate. You and me. We'll do it. I mean, I, I think you 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 really, could direct or you could be the star. I don't know. I just don't. I just don't understand. I just don't. You know, that that's the crazy part about like. That's the crazy part about all these TV shows that have blacksmithing in them. It's always, oh, well, people want to see sparks and people want to see flames yeah. and people want to see fire. But I would think that it's far more interesting to see. And maybe with the rise of social media, maybe people will start to see things kind of more. It's just more interesting for it to be normal and real than it to, it, to be anything else. I mean, I just I just find it all to be very 
I would imagine, I have a feeling that you've been approached by, to do a lot more TV than you're letting on. That's what I think. No, no, I, well, I mean, a little bit, but I mean, I've been in a couple of TV. I'm not really interested in TV, to be honest. I don't, I, I kind of, you know, we, we, we love doing the YouTube and I'd like to expand. We have, we've made two pilots for TV programs. I think there's just not enough general appeal for right. for people to put their money in to say you know let's let, let's make a program about the life of Baptist and then you've got you know you've got loads of there's a amazing glass blowing program called blown away have you oh, seen I've that heard about it yeah i've heard about it a few absolutely times on Netflix, i Netflix, mean, right love it absolutely love it yeah there's, a, there's quite a few and there's another woodworking one and there's you know, there's various other. There's there's the pottery, the great uh, British pottery throwdown, which is an amazing program. You know about different potters, and they're slightly reality TV. They're a bit like Forged in Fire. You know, that's the kind of classic formula. And we've tried to twist the formula a little bit by by coming up with different TV program ideas. Uh, mostly because we like showing off a bit, and we like the flame, and we like making films. Right. And you know, Steve <clears throat> is in charge of the YouTube. He does all the filming. He makes beautiful, beautiful filming, by the way. I mean, it, it's wicked on a on a twenty year old Nikon D sixty or something. You know, we don't have an. You know, I mean, we just bought a mic, and that's that's a revelation for us. Uh, and we want to expand into that, but just because we think it's got a place visually, but n- no TV producers or channels will pick it up. And it's really weird how off the you know the the success of Forged in Fire, which is uh, for for all its good and bad, it's a great program, highly addictive. Love watching it. It's very single purpose. It's just about weapons. Uh, and, and for me, I think you know, there's there's definitely space for a program about the broader reach of of ironwork and and blacksmithing. But it's just one of those things, and uh, no one's picked up yet. You know, maybe I it's believe, coming soon. Maybe it's in the, you know, maybe it's in the I pipeline. I don't know. What what drives me crazy about Forge and Fire, and, and I'm I'm pro Forge and Fire only because yeah. it gives people a foothold into that world. Yeah. Personally, I think the whole I will kill thing is the most antisocial thing on the planet, and I don't understand why. <laughs> That's, I don't know. No I mean, it idea why. A, it gives us a bad understand. name. I mean... I know, but I mean, it's for some reason we've embraced a lot of we were we're, once again society's embraced these antisocial you know things of like that's for some reason that's always been weird to me. But I I I honestly believe that it's going to take someone who has written a really good story, who will finance it on their own, and someone's going to take a chance. There's going to be a movie out. And it's going to be, it's going to represent a blacksmith in a way that it's going to open up the floodgates of more movies. Because I'm convinced all it's going to take is one one guy who's going to be like, it's going to be, it's going to take, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take Hugh Jackman to take a blacksmithing class and say, hey, you know, we should do a movie about this. And then all of a sudden, then that's how it's made. That's, and then it's going to be like rocket I mean cuz fortune fire is great and all but i mean it isn't yeah. like the high concept that a great film would be you know i i feel like 
I feel like it's around the corner. Something really good's going to come by. It's just bound to happen because it's just so. F- I meet blacksmiths like you and Steve, and I meet guys in the United States all over the place who are a Pat and and Chris Cash, and, and I meet all these different people and John Ariani and Cliff Dufton and all these guys. They all have these different. We all have this these you know different backgrounds and from different places. And Ben Snores from Texas, and you know all these different people from. But we all have this incredible story and it's always fascinating so i it's just it's just a matter of time before but i but what i will say is i'm very grateful to you alex for 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 what you're doing because you're going to be you're part of that when there when that giant when that movie comes out and all of a sudden it's just like everyone's going to have hammers and everyone's going to have an an yang in their in their kitchen and <laughs> it's going to be like a, i think i see i see a golden age that blows the doors off of anything to do with forge and fire i think forge and fire is going to be old news at some point but because well, i think it could like Black i think Smith it could expand masters out there you're going to be part of the help to get there well Pardon maybe me? i mean i you know i mean maybe it's not it's not necessarily my aim i like i like print i like books uh you know for me it was a thrill to see you know a book that i'd written on a on a bookshelf in a shop i mean that's a real you know it's a real buzz i collect i'm a kind of i buy my wife told me to stop buying so many books you know because they're beautiful things and they last and they and they have a they have a feeling they have a they have a presence so you know tv film has a place and you know one part of me thinks that i i kind of almost don't want it to go into mainstream you know there was a there was a time when you'd go to a dinner party or whatever and you go, you know, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a blacksmith. They go, wow. Now you go to dinner and a blacksmith. They go, oh, yeah, I know a blacksmith. I've got a couple in my village, you know. And we're kind of, it's become so popularized to a certain degree through social media, through, you know, YouTube and all this kind of stuff that, that everyone's a blacksmith now. And, you know, it kind of goes back to our right. previous kind of conversation, you know, uh, yeah, it'd be lovely to see a big blockbuster film about a blacksmith. But in a way, I almost feel a bit selfish about it these days, and a bit kind of. I don't. I don't want it to become a gimmick. You know, I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia about I blacksmithing, believe, and there's a lot of kind of. Yeah. I believe it'll be as interesting as a movie about a fighter about like a kind of as interesting as like the the kind of the uh, the idea of, a, of of the original rocky where it's this yeah. guy who's struggling and he's trying to make it and something happens i see i see it being i see something happening i see it for sure yeah. for sure and we're all going to be dragged to it and we're going to like we're going to complain i didn't like the way he did that and, and what is he hitting his <laughs> anvil like that for and I, I mean, we're going to be critical of it but it's going to be important and and uh I'm and that's a really interesting point, actually, but, you know, about writing a book and about, and I kind of alluded to it earlier about, you know, for me, this is like scary shit. It was really terrifying, sort of pushing the button on the manuscript. Yeah, we were lucky we were in a lockdown. It was going to be written anyway, it, you know, but it gave me time to, to write it. But it is. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, if there was a movie up there, we'd all be criticizing. He's holding his hammer wrong. That's not the right temperature. And I and I, I kind of have a fear about the book. And hopefully the fear is kind of, you know, maybe it's unfounded. But 
as much as we're all a community, we're also it's quite a critical community at times. And you're putting anything out there, you put a piece of work out there, you put a piece of you know, you put a photograph of a piece of work or you put an opinion. And nowadays we live in in, in an age where everyone can kind of throw their oar in, which I suppose is a good thing. But it was pretty terrifying, you know, putting the book out there and seeing what people thought of it. I'm going to tell you this with complete 100% honesty. I enjoyed reading this book cover to cover. It, it, it didn't take me a long time. I sat down and at first I was like, all right, well, I, I want to know what you... I was riveted by the stories, the stories of all the gods that were out there, the, there uh, all the different stories, the mythology... I enjoyed I enjoyed the way you talk to the reader. I love this book and I'm telling you this because we had been given a book before. And I'm not going to say anything other than it was so bad that it was so bad that we couldn't talk about it. I had I may to have make, a sneaking suspicion. I think I may know who's wrote that book. Well, when okay. this when this goes off, I may I will talk about it, but it was it was like I can't I can't I can't do it. I can't do this book. I think I, even, was, I think I have a copy. <laughs> well, you may you may have a copy, but we won't talk about that. But it was like, but with that said, the both of these books, Blacksmith Apprentice to Master, and The Forged Kitchen, are both masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. Go Very get nice. yourself a copy, guys, because Alex has done a great job. You have nothing. To, I loved it. I loved all of it. I really, really, truly enjoyed it. And even if you're not a blacksmith, if you're a woodworker, and you just want to kind of know a few things, this is the book for you. I, I loved it. I really did love it, Alex. And, and I, I was pissed off with the Forge Kitchen book because it was so good. I was like, fuck, he did such a good job. And that's the ultimate that's the ultimate badge of honor for me. It's like when I'm mad about something, I'm mad because it's so good because I'm just like, now what am I going to do? I can't do anything like this. This is perfect. So thank you so much for being on the podcast as always, Alex. You are just terrific. I'm very appreciative for to you for what you've done, for what you're doing to the community for the community at large, and for what you're doing for blacksmithing. I think both these books are terrific. Really terrific. So, you there? <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I'm, we're going to wrap it up now. Um, guys, go pick it up. Blacksmith, Apprentice to Master. Uh, Tools and Traditions of an Ancient Craft by Alex Pohl. Definitely go pick up the Forge Kitchen. It's got some recipes in there that you will definitely want to try. Go follow whatever Alex is doing. Go follow him on Instagram. Alex Pohl. It's just Alex Pohl, right? Is it Alex Pohl? Alex Pohl Ironwork. And go, if you're in the... Alex, thanks again. I hope when lockdown stops and the world gets back together, I can come and we can hang out. And bring, I'll, bring, uh, I'll bring the boys over and we'll uh, have a good time. Let's do it. Well, Merry Christmas to you and the boys. Send my regards to Steve, Joe, and all the guys over there. And thanks again for being on the podcast. All right, guys. 
have a wonderful week. We got I got we're next week. We're gonna spend Christmas with Fingal Ferguson. Fingal Ferguson is gonna we're gonna have Fingal's gonna be here for Christmas, and then in between Christmas and New Year's, we're gonna have Noah Vashon's gonna hang out with me. So we got a lot of plans for the rest of the year. Go follow us on Instagram, uh, Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. Leave us a review; I would help. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Alex. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.